0: Thank you all for joining me on the latest CSG Politics. Before I get started, I'd like to talk to you about Blanchett Family Wines located between 18th and 19th in and wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Um, Good time right now to support your local business. Uh, We have um, just, I mean, some of the restrictions are are being loosened right now, um, and that helps. But uh, really, they just need you to either go to bfwdenver.com or go down and pick up uh, a bottle of wine or do the outdoor dining. I mean, they got heated areas there at Blanchard. Um, I do notice, I saw some pictures that uh, some of the restaurants on on, uh, the dairy block have uh, some of those pods uh, going on. So um, obviously, there's options there for you right now. And I think dining in Denver is at 25% for the time being until they can get their incidence rate down a like couple hundred for a week. So that made that, you know, obviously is going to affect things. So, but anyway, buy your family wines, go and get yourself some uh, Cabernet, um, 2017 Cabernet, my favorite. Or you got some Pinot because they are uh, grapes from Sonoma County, California. You know, obviously that's the specialty there. Even more than that, they got partnerships with some western slope, slope wineries and restoration storm cellars and a, and a winery in the uh, Elk Mountains of Colorado near Aspen. Basically, anything you want, they are a local business. Please go and give them all the support you can. Like I said there, go to bfwdenver.com, where you can also book your virtual wine tastings, which are really, really popular. Uh, once again, they're located between 18th and 19th in Blake and Wazie, in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. They are on Facebook and Instagram under Blanchard Family Wines. When you go in, tell them Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sent you there. What is up, everybody? Thank you all for joining us on the latest CSG Politics. I am your co-host, Jeff Morton. Joining me, as always, is uh, the man, the myth, the legend, uh, a better gambler than me, because I don't gamble. It's Mr. Pat Guerin. Hello, Pat. Good day,
1: sir. You are truly magnificent. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Uh, It's the one consistent... Uh, theme song i have on this channel is magnificent for this this here show uh and i okay, was thinking perfect i was thinking yesterday that maybe i should get a, a theme song for the music pod but uh yeah. i know there would be vehement disagreements on what that one should be so, <laughs> although
1: the- i have heard that. some discussion about maybe some original uh uh music that mm-hmm. uh might be archived out there by one or more of the co-hosts so yeah. um yeah That's yes right. uh an appropriate song for sure, uh, yeah. for, uh, for us, because we are indeed magnificent.
0: We are. Okay. Well, we're going to start with our, our usual news roundup segment here on CSU politics and, uh, anything you would like to start off with, sir? Well, Morty,
1: I'm looking at this here and trying to decide, um, whether I should be defaulting towards rage or towards uh, hope, and I'm I'm going to ask for your help to keep me okay. uh, from going off into the rage side. Um, right. But uh, you know, recapping the week uh, since we last spoke, there have been uh, some wild developments. Uh, starting with uh, the impeachment of the President of the United States, a second impeachment now, uh, an all-time record, the best right. at getting impeached. I can't something believe saying, it. On a certain extent, <laughs> <laughs> people are saying that uh, no one gets impeached. Like, like Donald, Donald this Trump. guy gets impeached, and uh, you know, I, I honestly, part of me cannot believe it because impeachment is such a big deal. Uh, we've now had three of them in our lifetime, which is wild. Right. Um, but you know, they—I give credit to the House uh, leadership there of uh, basically marshaling everybody's eyewitness accounts into, Hey, we all lived this experience and it's terrible. Let's have a vote, you know? And, uh, so they did, uh, pull, peel off, uh, 10 Republicans who joined in that effort. And, um, what will happen from here remains to be seen and is open to all kinds of controversy and discussion. But the fact that it happened at all is pretty remarkable, uh, for someone with, you know, less than two, two weeks or around two weeks left in office. Um, yeah. so, yeah. you know that's. Uh, that's the first sort of bullet point that I'm looking at here for the week in review.
0: Yeah, well, let me, let me th- throw this out there to people who are like, always point out Bill Clinton's uh, impeachment. As someone who was alive and very much an adult, at the time, Bill Clinton was impeached. Uh, let me tell you something. There's a huge difference between Bill Clinton's impeachment and the two Donald Trump impeachments. One, Bill Clinton was impeached by a outgoing Republican caucus uh, that lost heavily because they were talking nonstop impeachment in nineteen ninety eight, um, and coming into the ninety nine congressional seat, they lost like fourteen or fifteen seats. It was massive amount of seats they lost. They got their clocks clean, so they rushed the impeachment through the lame duck session and impeached Bill Clinton over a lying about a blowjob in a deposition, and which look. I don't encourage lying. Um, obviously, no one should be lying in depositions. But let me tell you something. There is a massive difference between uh, uh, lying about a blowjob in a deposition and uh, trying to find getting getting a foreign, adversi- a foreign ally to pick up dirt or gin up dirt on your political opponent and staging an insurrection. I think on the scale of things, these are completely different. Plus, When Bill Clinton left office, his popularity was above 60%. It was insane.
1: (laughs) There's... There's no greater line of demarcation in the difference in the impeachments than that represented by the person from uh, South Carolina, Lindsey Graham, who was a House manager in the, from the House uh, in the Clinton impeachment. And if you want to just take a walk down hypocrisy lane with Lindsey Graham, there's so much material to yes. uh, dig through. But listen to his indignance about the horror that Bill Clinton perpetrated on the rule of law. And uh, you know this will turn into you know insert your slippery slope argument here and him and henry hyde and denny haster and others of that era were just so befuddled newt gingrich um, were just so outraged by the behavior of bill clinton at least that's what they would say to the c-span cameras um and now you see lindsey graham you know talking about how oh this is going to ruin the country you know this is the worst thing we can do to america you know what a disgrace these evil democrats are i mean lindsey graham i don't know how he is able to keep track of the things that outrage him because there's no moral or political well, i guess there's political consistency because it's always just for his um his own personal benefit in the party and it's pretty sickening. But uh, the differences in those impeachments are very clear. Um, I know that um, people that are Trump supporters, I'm sure, um, you know, feel that these are just politically motivated, um, which is what I'm asserting that the Clinton impeachment was. I mean, they started investigating him on day one, and it wasn't Whitewater. It wasn't the travel office scandal. It wasn't Vince Foster's murder that got him in trouble. It was that it was uncovered that he had a sexual relationship with an intern and they decided to ask him about it under oath and he lied about it and that is illegal and maybe it should be noted or censured or maybe they could have done you know this whole justice department memo idea of letting him get out of office and then charging him with it he did ultimately get disbarred after he left the presidency Uh, but like he said he did leave with uh, popularity and also you know I think a lot of our views of Bill Clinton, the man, have evolved over time. Um, But he, as a politician, provoked a lot of opposition. Uh, He was the first Boomer president. He was a Southerner. He was, you know, part of that Democratic Leadership Council that was sort of moving Democrats in a different direction than they'd traditionally been. And the party benefited from that, you know, really up to this day. But he was an imperfect messenger, which made him a perfect target. Donald so Trump, who, on the other hand, is literally doing things uh, that are a, a violation of his oath.
0: Yes, but, I, ahead, No, no. Who, you know who I blame, blame for the, the the modern era? You know, a lot of people go back to Reagan and Lee Atwater and all the divisive politics of that era, and then you get into Dude. into you know what happened with George w, H. W. Bush pardoning the uh, Iran Contra people at the behest of uh, Bill Barr, um, old friend, but. I blame H. Ross Perot for this, because Mm. Perot being in the 92 election has given Republicans license to bitch about every single election where Democrats win, Because they to this day say the only reason H.W. lost is because Ross Perot was in it. And you could make an argument. You can make an argument because he got a sizable part of the Republican electorate, you know?
1: Yeah, and, I do make that argument, actually. I mean, yeah. that wasn't the only reason, but it was, the, I mean, the math is pretty obvious. But, you know, uh, Republicans have to blame somebody because they don't win elections. You know, they win electoral college votes right. and then lo- lose, you know, and I I understand that's the system. That's what how we do it. But the reality is, is they have an ever-shrinking um, appeal to the growing electorate, and that they have to mitigate that. In different ways, and certainly in Insurrection Week, uh, we, we, as more uh, footage and such comes out, we see how that spoon-fed talk is just right, you know, buried into the soul of uh, of a fairly significant minority.
0: Right, and, it, and it, it's created this uh, constantly aggrieved thing, and mm-hmm. um, you've got the president being impeached twice, which is unprecedented and should, uh, in itself, bar him from public office. Again, uh, even if they don't vote to convict, which I'm saying that ch- I'm thinking the chances are slim because you know Republicans are going to republican, but it is it is certainly that sh- itself should like be enough to like say we cannot have this scourge in our party anymore, and what his what I'm concerned about mostly is getting this done the impeachment trial and getting essential cabinet members approved through the senate and this massive stimulus idea from uh Biden all colliding at the same time um in order to get us out of this pandemic because you know stuff for the 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 um the uh, uh the virus Excellent. the vaccine <laughs> putting the virus into people no we don't want that we want well that's basically what a vaccine that's true this is true (laughs) um so we want that and you know johnson and johnson's uh uh, one-shot vaccine is within weeks of approval here which will be a game changer uh so obviously we need help with all that but we need to be able to do both and it's going to be really really difficult
1: Well, I mean, but the reality is, is that uh, Chuck Schumer is going to be running the Senate and that changes the entire game. I mean, let's not forget about, we are on the precipice, you know, we're under 80 hours away from a new administration being sworn in, uh, even less when uh, when people are listening to this. So take joy in that. But uh, that is why we talked about last week, you know, how I was so shocked that Democrats were able to pull off what happened in uh, Georgia. That changed the whole trajectory of governance, at least for the next two years. And that is a... something that I don't think is fully sunk in it's for me and it right. seems like even like what you're saying just right now morty um that like that is a that is a calculation that is so critical, you know. And are there gonna be things that don't work, you know, out because Joe Manchin or some other kind of obstruction happens along the way, no doubt about it. But right. you know, the the opportunity to have control of the Senate to set the agenda to decide what things get brought to the floor. I mean, the House passed that CARES Act last year in, you know, April or, or so, and it just languished, you know, and there's numerous bills that would just languish and would just never be brought up for a vote. And they would pass if they were brought up for a vote. Right. And so the, the calculation there is going to be totally different, and you know the other news of the week, I think um, on a happier note that uh, from last week that I just wanted to touch on was the the national address to the to the nation by okay. Joe Biden laying out his economic plan that you alluded to there with uh, not only the stimulus but his hundred day plan to get a hundred million Americans vaccinated bold um, uh, goals and uh, and watching that speech was reminiscent of something that I hadn't seen in such a long time, which was a president talking to the nation, not talking to their voters, not, talking about their grievances or how they're treated unfairly, but talking about what they're going to do. Having a person in office with a governing philosophy that has built a team that shares in that philosophy is going to be a fundamental change from what we've experienced for the past four years. I've always made the argument that if Hillary Clinton had been the president, then the coronavirus would have been handled in a much different way. And I assert there's no way to verify this, of course, but that at this point, in time, we would be in a much better situation economically and by risk management wise. Um, and I think that we're going to have the opportunity to see that um, stark difference once we have a person in office who truly understands how government works, has a philosophy of what the role of government is, mm-hmm. and when they start getting involved in ensuring that their targets for vaccine distribution are met, then they will pull out all the stops in order to make that happen whether that means involving the national guard whether that means enlisting uh you know massive facilities like sporting arenas and things like that there will be somebody who's paying attention to it donald trump has not much coronavirus in like 40 some days and when doing so it was all grievance related anyway so the, the the presidential sort of aura that does carry weight whether they're be doing their job as consoler in chief after tragedies or talking about difficult times, whether they're having to rally people behind them in order to get important legislation passed, whether they're having to rally the nation to come together due to other sorts of tragedies or other right. sorts of um, obstacles. Um, we have not had that and we've forgotten what it's like. And so yeah. the split screen between January 6th and 100 days into the Biden administration are going to be stark.
0: Absolutely. And what was good to me was seeing being reminded how normal a president can be. And uh, because we've been living with uh, announcement and proclamation via tweet <laughs> and then uh, getting grievance-laden uh, uh campaign stops basically is how he would communicate he needed the adulation of his 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 uh well grievance based base to uh to uh sustain him so all we got was this for the last four years and then suddenly biden comes out and he gives this like right after the insurrection happened he had a speech kind of brought the temperature down a little right Um, And then he's done, I think, three speeches this last week or two. I know it's three speeches this last week. Very normal. Very not condescending to the American people. Very like, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm typical presidential boilerplate. I would never been so happy to get presidential boilerplate in my life. I've had the last week because it was the sense of normalcy again, and and a lot of it is is like one of the I could to bring up Bill Clinton again, but one of Bill Clinton's great aspects was he was very good at feeling your pain, right? That was his thing. He was very was able to put out that he was very empathetic. I think whether he genuinely was or not. I think Biden is genuinely an empathetic person. And right now, while our economy is being ravaged, while the virus is costing 400,000 lives, all of that, you need a guy who can feel your pain without, with a lack of a better word. That's
1: a direct quote from Bill Clinton, I think, uh, yes. I feel your pain. <laughs> um, yes, there's no doubt about that. That's a great point, um, Morty. And it really posits the question, like, if t- if Twitter had decided or trump decided not to be on twitter once he took office and it was maybe engaged with more in the obama way where they tweeted from potus and white house and it was typically staffers um and uh people from the press shop running that um that a lot of this incendiary sort of talk would have gotten filtered and not just dumped into the you know sort of ravenous lapse of the uh, so-called economically oppressed, aggrieved base that he has. And, um, uh, you know, basically uh, uh, most presidents, again, uh, those presidents that follow the general decorum of the office, you know, would do that by default. I think you're going to see Joe Biden engaging with Twitter in a much different way and likely never getting banned for from it. Um, but, but had Trump done so, I mean, these last few weeks, you know, there's still wild stories coming out of the White House, that, you know, through the normal leaks to Maggie Hagerman and Haberman, rather, and uh, you know others in the news media that are plugged in there. But so many times, what the staffers would be uh, doing or the messaging that would be coming out of the White House was immediately contradicted by a tweet sent out by the president. And had that not been a factor, going all the way back to his, you know, start in office, I think he probably would have had a more successful presidency, and maybe that would have even been a difference in him getting reelected. So who knows? I'm
0: I'm I'm curious to see uh, how because the more news stories come out about the, the attempted insurrection, the more harrowing it becomes. And the more you, you understand that things were closer to getting really messed up than we thought at that day. And the more that comes out, you're like, we're going to need something like major to bring this country together. I, uh, I was thinking about, you know, my boy, Tim Miller, he did a uh, uh, kind of a, a recitation of what that, the, the pillow jackass who went to uh, the White House yesterday uh, and what he was wanting to accomplish uh, mm-hmm. because he watched this fucking Facebook video where the guy talked about it afterwards. And it's, it was like batshit crazy. And it's nice to not have, and it will be nice to not have that element infiltrating the White House anymore. Because there's no reason this moron, this former crackhead, is is uh, should should have any anywhere be, get within like a hundred yards of this or a hundred miles of this uh, this White House.
1: Make the fringe the fringe again is what you're right. saying, Morty. Right, <laughs>
0: right. You right, know, right.
1: yes. I mean. All presidents, in one way or another, interacted with uh, people that you would maybe feel weren't appropriate to be in the inner circle or have the ear of the president. Right. Um, you know, whether it's their earlier relationships with certain people, or, or you know, bad, you know, advisors that were controversial or whatever. But the nut jobs that have been through the Oval Office, from Diamond and Silk to My Pillow guy. Uh, And the influence that they somehow end up having you know they're riding on air force one they're going to these rallies they're doing these sorts of things and they have the ear of the president while well-meaning republicans that you know have a history of working in government and have a history of like helping to build the brand and the governing philosophy of the party are just shunned uh there's a reason why nothing got accomplished and, and why things that should have been paid attention to weren't and so um you know i think that you you mentioned you know there's got to be something to bring the country together okay. i don't know what that is i don't know if that's possible but i think um m- my old line here that i repeat all the time of making politics boring again will suck some of the oxygen out of that public square um sort of adversarial arguments now there's always going to be the oh the government's now you know we're going to have all these deficit hawks and and debt warnings and all this that are disingenuous based upon uh, what's happened recently, but, you know, not having to talk every single day about the latest crazy thing that happened in the white house uh, is going to deprive a lot of this sort of fringe people from the space to interact with the political sort of normies, you know, and I think that that is going to be a step in the right direction. Now, you know, of course the 2022 election is going to be underway on uh, 12 30 p.m. on January 20th and the 2024 election as well and those things are going to be going on but I think that there's a discipline that I've seen thus far out of the transition it will carry over to the administration that will again kind of starve that appetite um, and bring the rhetoric down and I hope that there's partners on both sides I hope that some of the um, you know the more the louder voices on the left uh, are, are in for that and I hope that uh, some of the people on the right um, find their way to um, toning things down and not making everything just about demonstrating their fealty to the leader. Um, but we shall see.
0: Before we, uh, before we go to break and talk about our main subject here, um, what do you think about my idea to block all politicians, to, no matter what, from Twitter? Is, there a, is, is that infringe too much of an infringement on free speech?
1: Okay, so the, I want to start with the end of the question there. The free speech argument is bullshit because yeah. um, you can you talk. Know, yeah. you can talk. The, the, the free speech, as enshrined by the Constitution, is about government control over speech. Okay, it's not about. Your teacher in high school telling you that you have to be quiet or that you're not allowed to swear in her classroom, and you're talking about how you have a First Amendment right to free speech. That's a specious argument, it's bullshit, and we should call it out as such because you know we can't expect the whole country to be like constitutional experts, but having yeah. a general awareness of what what things mean is sort of important as a sort of civic responsibility. So, Twitter, Facebook, Parler, Snapchat, TikTok all these things they get to decide what their standards are you know if they don't want there to be i mean apple doesn't allow anything in its app store that is like potentially pornographic or sexual in nature okay is that an oppression i don't know but it's their app store it's their device it's their company they get to decide what they want that is their exercise of their free speech twitter deciding to ban donald trump that is their exercise of their free speech, his free speech he doesn 't have a right to that in those platforms now, to answer the full question i 'm reluctant to think that it 's necessary to ban all politicians from twitter um, and i 'll d- disclose my bias. I love twitter i uh, um, am on it regularly and and sort of devour everything as you soon as there's both, like man, when, I, when i was younger <laughs> if there was a news a breaking news story i would be sure to go to like nbc news because i wanted to hear tom brokaw tell me about you know this right. important news and i wanted that to be my memory now i'm like oh i gotta get on the twitter and find out what all these people that i like feel like i know personally have to say or you know these people that i don't know yet but they're on the inside and they have this like TikTok of what's going on right. uh no relation to the social media app yeah um right. and so Anyhow, I think it's troublesome. I think that much like the Constitution assumed that there would be a lot of norms that were followed and so they weren't codified into law, which I think is something that we need to look at certain things in that realm uh, when it comes to executive power and certain things that happen as the government has evolved since the constitution was written. Right. But I think that uh, in in, in, so, in social media, there's going to be a moderation that's going to occur just because again, of a, having a new normal style administration where again, the POTUS account the, at Joe Biden, those sorts of accounts, those are largely going to be conveying really boring um, middle of the road type policy things, uh, happy kwanzaas and you know let's remember Martin Luther King on this day and all that sort of thing. And so I think that you do need to have, kind of what they do have, which is a case-by-case analysis, and maybe put more st- sort of stringent standards on things that people in public life are saying, rather than less, which has kind of been what they've done, like, hey, we leaders, we're not going to censor them. And then they've slowly stepped up all the way to the point of booting uh, Trump. But it's pro- it's problematic when, you know, Trump is booted, but Putin isn't. And, you know, you've got the leader of Iran still free to, you know, say whatever they want on there. And and, and so the social media space is uh, a, a massive dumpster fire. Mm-hmm. But I think if you ban politicians, you also are banning the voices of reason that would come from that. Mm-hmm. And that's an important counterweight, you know, for every person that wants to tweet this lunatic with the horns storming the Capitol. There's people that are going to tweet, you know, the vice president elect and, you know, other, you know, f- former, um, secretary of state, Hillary Clinton saying, you know, Hey, uh, we need to follow the rule of law. People need to be reasonable, these sorts of things. So sure. long-winded way of answering your question. I don't know that that's the answer. I think for- having some very, um, specific norms that are enforced is the way to do it. Sure. And also, utilizing the value of some that have something to say, you know, like if Mitt Romney has some pushback on an attempted insurrection, there should be an avenue for him to get that to us very quickly. And that should be in the same sphere where other people are having that conversation and wouldn't necessarily be bound by the political, being a being a politician and having different rules for them, so mm-hmm. there you go.
0: Well, I, I that's, that's a good answer. Um, okay, well, uh, we're going to take a break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about something that's close to both Pat and I, um, Colorado's congressional third district, which produces uh, batshit crazy people like Lauren Boebert. Uh, we will be uh, talking about that in just a moment. Right. We are back from break. Uh, we, uh, Pat and I were just discussing how we got uh, two two songs from No Lion on the Horizon here. Uh, uh we uh I think we've uh I think we've uh, kind of exhausted the base of uh, No Lion on the Horizons theme music possibility here. <laughs> so uh okay, sir. We are back, and um, both you and I have have experience with a certain congressional district, um, because we both spent um, some portion of our lives on the western slope. Uh, what all right, had some technical difficulties there, folks, but we are back. Um, now you and I both have experience on the uh, the the third congressional district, uh, having spent a portion of our lives within that that district. Uh, you more than me, but we have some experience in that. Now, the why do you say the you know people are listening to this thinking why are you talking about the third congressional district of Colorado? Well, it is because a certain uh, gun wielding a politician who owns a restaurant in Rifle called Shooter's, um, is part of that. Yes, I'm talking about Lauren Boebert. Is there something, and then we can just kind of start here, is there something intrinsic about that district that produces people like Lauren Boebert?
1: Well, let me first describe the district. So even if you're from Colorado, you might not fully understand the sort of demographic that's occurs there and if you're not from Colorado you're baffled at how Colorado the state that voted for Barack Obama two times who is like formerly a purple state now clearly a blue state could be sending people like this to Congress and the reason is is because the third congressional district of Colorado which I believe is if not the largest then one of the largest um, congressional districts um, in the country as far as land area which we know which we know from our Republican friends that land votes. <laughs> um, but uh, they, uh, what it is, is it's, it's this district where if you look at the rectangular shape of Colorado, basically the entire like left-hand side or the, the Western side and uh, is that district. And then it even sort of meanders over to cover some of the south and southeastern-ish part of the state. And so you go from the Northwest corner of Colorado, which is rural, which is farmland, um, But then it starts encompassing like Steamboat Springs, which is a a sort of higher income, more left-leaning pocket. And then you go on down into the central part of the western part of the state. And then you've got Grand Junction, which is one of the biggest municipalities, which is very right-leaning. But then you've got Aspen, which is like as sort of bourgeois and, uh, and progressive as you can get, you know, it's like Boulder in the mountains there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it springs back down and encompasses Telluride, which is maybe a little bit similar there, but then goes over to the East and picks up Pueblo. And Mm -hmm. so you've got a vast difference in people that is being, that are being represented by that district. And there's also a friction between the towns that are sort of, your working class, middle class, agricultural towns, and then these sort of ski resort towns. Mm -hmm. And those ski resort towns are resented. Um, And that's why their influence politically is muted. And in this last election that just happened in the 2020 election, Lauren Boebert won against this gal, uh, Diane Mitch Bush, who was from Steamboat and so she naturally wasn't able to break through and pick off some of those votes in order to close the gap. She lost by about six points and she I believe was like a former Republican and like had all kinds of bona fides that would have been appropriate for uh, a Republican to maybe want to vote for somebody that wasn't insane but what happened in the third district is the opposite of what happened in the New York district where um, AOC was able to win which is I mean, it was the same thing on opposite sides, which is a person that is way more to the political sort of extreme on the right or left, primary to sitting congressperson and one And then the fact that they won that primary almost assured them to win the election because it's a heavily partisan district in New York. It was like whatever the Democrat on the ballot is, is going to be the winner. And here in the Colorado third congressional district, whoever was going to win, uh, the primary was going to win the election. And so Scott Tipton had been the incumbent and he was a more moderated Republican, although still very much a Republican and, and able to win there. Um, I think he had like four terms, um, or, or more, um, and he was beaten in the primary and then lauren Boebert, who you know her biography i saw some people on twitter this week say like did we know that this woman was crazy because i don't remember a lot of deep dives into this well that's because she's not from brooklyn she's from rifle Rifle. <laughs> that's right that's right that is the real name of a real town um <laughs> and her biography is bizarre when it comes to a political candidate she as you alluded to, owns a restaurant. It's called Shooter's, and the whole shtick of it is that they carry that they open carry, the staff does. All the waitresses have, like, you know, guns on their hip for whatever reason. Um, and, uh, you know, she has been arrested numerous times and had warrants issued for not showing up to court for some of those arrests. Her husband has some dubious interactions with the law. Uh, she claims to be someone who pulled herself up from her bootstraps and realized that, you know, government wasn't a solution. And, and that story sort of has fallen apart a little bit as people have looked into her past and how that looks. She got her GED like earlier in the year in 2020, ostensibly as as a reason, uh, as, you know, because she was going to be running for office. Mm. And so all none of those things necessarily are disqualifying of a person from from being an appropriate person to represent a congressional district. But her views are... More in line with the loudmouth, brash right that has taken, that we've been talking about for a long time. Um, but, you know, she famously got into a tit for tat with Better Work at a campaign stop um, when he was running for president and he was visiting Colorado. Right. And she used that to elevate her profile to the people that are in the western part of the state, which, again, they also feel that the eastern part of the state is like doesn't understand them and they don't want anything to do with them you know if it was all on the ballot they'd probably vote to secede from you know the the big cities that that are the center of the population in colorado um and so she was able to do that then she leaned into the QAnon um sort of conspiracy world um she caught the eye of president trump and she was off to the races and you know she had an a wild um video that she put out um a few you know not long before the attempted insurrection you know with her sort of advocacy of guns she's like insistent that she is able to carry a gun on her while in the house of representatives um she refused to um allow the the security measures that were put up after the insurrection she refused to participate in them she just walked right through the the metal detectors and wouldn't let them look in her bag and and all this so she comes with a sense of entitlement as well and then but just to put a, a, a final point on this third congressional district there in 2008 they it was represented by a democrat um actually john salazar was first elected in 2004 and you know he then was eventually defeated um in 2010 by scott tipton um in that midterm election and so while you while you and i like you said have a connection to there and we always think it is super red there are reasonable Democrats that break through. Um, you know, when when I was growing up there, Scott McInnes was a Democratic, or I'm sorry, the Republican representative. And, uh, you know, he later tried to run for governor and and uh, grow his political brand um, from there. But right before that, Ben Night Horse Campbell was a Democrat, represented that district. So it's yeah. moved as much of the country has into way more polarized electorate To And it'll be fascinating to see What happens with redistricting? Uh, I think we expect Colorado to get one more congressional
0: seat. I think that's it,
1: and how that is aligned, you wonder if that cuts in in certain ways to the third congressional district and, and either makes that even more solidly Republican um, or splits it to where maybe at least the moderation aspect comes into play more and you don't end up with like QAnon sympathizers representing you in Congress?
0: Well, I, I, my, my solution would be to lop off the from Pueblo down to Durango uh, just the entire southern yeah. part. Now there's a population proportionality thing that you have to get into, but there would be quite, quite frankly, the eastern slu- in the eastern part of uh, the district, which is I, I forget which is that the fourth district, it, the one that Ken Buck represents, uh, is all of basically right. all of eastern Colorado. Right. Okay. So.
1: Yeah, I believe that is the fourth.
0: Yeah. So that is also a massive district. However, that seems to be more uniform. The problem with the third district is that it's not. And I think the people of Pueblo, the people of Aspen, the people of Telluride and all that stuff probably don't get proportional representation right now, at least from their own ideals. I don't know about
1: Pueblo. I think Pueblo is really where this last election was lost for the Democrats. They expected to maybe have a show yeah. in there and, and, you know, there was not, there weren't the votes there that they were needed to close the gap. So right. I think Pueblo, I think there's not that, I think Pueblo and Grand Junction are like practically sister cities, you know, your towns.
0: Yeah. And, you know, Pueblo is bigger than than, than Junction, but it's it's also the the biggest municipality there, but Mesa County is the biggest county. And it's like, it, what it ends up being, and I've always had this theory that um, a, the more a society, for whatever reason, feels like they are being ignored, the more they will devolve into uh, the, the most angry, loud person they can get in order to make people pay attention to them. And I think I think that part particularly with congressional districts. I, I mean I'm not talking necessarily about Donald Trump uh and that him appealing to whatever aggrieved part of the Republican Party he had. I'm talking about specifically in congressional districts, especially the way they get gerrymandered. Now here here's something to throw out there. Um this isn't uh this is a massive district. This is not necessarily a quote, gerrymandered district. It is just freaking huge and where i think we are are struggling with third district is tipton was okay i guess as a republican i don't recall him being too nuts but bobert is just insane and i don't want to cast aspersions on the people who are like in the corridor from rifle from Glenwood Springs to Rifle to uh, to Grand Junction in that metro area, but that seems to be the dominant portion of this district. Would you agree? Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, it's, it's a fascinating sort of uh, insight into the impact that the way congressional districts are drawn can, work. And it's al- almost like a patchwork type situation, which is like, hey, when this became a state, these were the congressional districts. And then every 10 years, we like tweak things based upon who was you do- doing the tweaking in order to try to basically cultivate something that was beneficial to them. Yeah, And I think the third congressional district is a good example of that, where, you know, I mean, I said, it, I was looking this up. And, you know, I said, oh, it's mostly um kind of rural but in reality it's uh, you know according to the demographics that are posted it's like 65% urban mm-hmm. um and and you know and it has a population of like 750,000 in in that space and so it's definitely going to produce candidates that you know may not be the candidates that you and I like but a Scott Tipton is like a reasonable rep- Republican, you know. Essentially, these are like broad strokes. I can nitpick him to death if we wanted to. Are relevant to discussion and hopefully lead to like compromise things that are for the good of all. And so that you know, I'm you know happy to concede that red district. In order for that to be the case, as long as the people that come from it are people of like reasonable mind. And that aren't sort of inclined to, you know, um, appeal to our worst sort of uh, shadows. And I think that that's what, having grown up there, I know that those people that are, are, you know, are gladly voting for someone like Lauren Boebert are doing so you know, with a middle finger extended to the quote unquote establishment or to the big city guys or whatever. And that mentality has just bastardized itself into the point where it's like has to be people that are like, sympathetic to the overthrow of the Capitol. And therein lies the real sort of uh, fear that I have with her. And then, you know, some of the other fringe candidates like um, Marjorie Taylor Greene out of Georgia, places like that, you know, they're one of 438 representatives in general if they're just a little bit kind of nutty or a little bit kind of extreme they'll be moderated out by just the sheer numbers of the house but with the twitter with the sort of maga army um their voice gets elevated and it then has an effect on them to continue to feed that beast which is dangerous
0: Uh, um you know i i even in Circa 1990. Let's let's pick a date. Uh, 1996. Scott McGinnis comes out there uh, to Central High School in Grand Junction. Um, <laughs> has a has a what I would see is a poorly conceived discussion with the denizens of the uh, <laughs> of Central High School, in which a, a Chinese exchange student berated him for. <laughs> for a while, which is something that I'll vividly remember. And a a certain Pat Guerin got into it got into it with, with uh, Scott McInnes. But one of the, my takeaways I was a member of
1: the media at that time morning. Yes you
0: were yes you were one of my takeaways from him even back then is the constantly aggrieved we're being ignored by Denver aspect of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this Uh, of this situation, of of Grand Junction, where no no one ever pays attention to us, why no one ever pays attention to us, which is, you know, I'm probably, you know, I'm sure this is 100% true, because it's 250 miles away, and the population center is, of the I-25 corridor, is, what, 70% of the state, you know, population, so uh, obviously it's a natural thing, but it was was entrenched even back then, and I think some of that Uh, being ignored aspect I think as far as if we're going to psychoanalyze people who live out there I think the being ignored part is something that is is probably ingrained into the psyche of people who live out there and I think that just builds resentment and I don't think necessarily it's a right thing to do but I think that's ingrained into them
1: yes but it's evolved because it used to be that they liked that that, that mm-hmm. they like enjoyed not having to be part of the city i mean I, you know when i was young there they referred to everything that was going like to everything that was to the east of um of glenwood springs i guess as back east you know like oh well back east i think this you know or they'd say so, like oh, over in the big city and this and that and also in those days even like the eastern part of colorado was wasn't as Um, sort of blue as it is now but there was this idea that's like hey we choose to live over here because we don't want people getting involved in our daily lives we like small government all that makes perfect sense I mean as a matter of fact if you're to make an argument for the value of traditional conservative views of government it applies to people that do not live in urban areas because there's not as much need to confront problems that urbanism presents and so you know, you live out in basalt and your neighbor is a quarter mile from you. And yes, Aspen is right up the road. And that's like, you know, the place that you don't go because that's not your, your type of scene. But, you know, you can go down to Glenwood, you go down to Rifle or Debec and all these sorts of places and you fi- find people of similar mind. Their main political issues in those dates that you're discussing, were relating to water rights, right. um, we're relating to Bureau of Land Management leasings. Uh, later, it really moved a lot more into energy, such as fracking and things like that. Um, But now it's that, oh, you're, you know, the rest of the country is telling us that we have to accept gay marriage, or, you know, these welfare people, because while they may be around poor people all the time, they don't interact with people that, that have ever been on public assistance, because their communities are different, you know, and they handle it in different ways. And that's okay. But when you get into a scenario where now it's just, you know, the politics of a grievance of grievance, then you're going to have people that just, that's what they run on is, Hey, I have grievances too. I was arrested for this and didn't show up to court and had to do this. And, you know, I'm, I'm angry about that. And, you know, I have uh, an entire wing of my house divided, devoted to firearms and they're going to come and take them, you know, even though no one's ever come to take anyone's guns, but that's still enough to get people riled up about all the time. So, you know, that is, it's a microcosm of what you see in a lot of states as statewide. It just sort of sticks out in Colorado because it's so sort of antithetical to the prevailing political punditry sort of attitude about what the state is. But there's a, there's a very loud minority and it's a majority in the third congressional district.
0: Well, and, and, and I I think there's some, some contradictory things particularly about Mesa County. Um, I, I think Mesa County may be the only Or at least it was in the '90s. I don't know about now. Um, The only place in Colorado that has a a subsidized, subsidized, essentially free clinic called the Marillac Clinic for for people. I mean, that was that was something that I had never seen anywhere. I mean, I lived and grew up in Denver. I'd never seen that before. Um, They had things like that, which were basically very uh, kind of what you would consider stereotypically democratic leaning areas would have that sort of thing. It, I mean ruby red, I mean thing, just okay. to that
1: point to that point real quick, there was a healthcare system over there uh that was it was an HMO that was like you, hailed by President Obama in a speech about how Obamacare would bring that everywhere. Yeah. And uh since since that HMO has been dismantled.
0: Oh my God. <laughs>
1: so uh, again, it brings, you back, it brings us back to this idea where people aren't necessarily voting for things that are in their personal best interest. They're getting bogged down in the ideology of what their vote represents and what it says about them. Even though if they would vote a different way, they would personally benefit, which is a disconnect that continues to grow and is a problem in our sort of national politics.
0: Well, and, and let's kind of go this way too, because uh, I always bring this book up and I highly suggest people go go check it out. It's What's the Matter with Kansas? Um, and essentially it's the a book about people voting against their own best interest. It's a great book. And uh, one of the reasons I encourage you to to read that is because it, it really says a lot about the third district of Colorado. Um, and uh the driving factor for a lot of these people is social issues and those social issues absolutely override everything and uh, it's putting all the resentment against the eastern slope aside um there is this cultural thing that i've always been convinced that it derives from the fact that grand junction specifically isn't a hole um <laughs> just like physically that they call it a valley, but no, it, it, Grand Junction resides in a hole. It is, surri- it is surrounded by l- large things that are very high. Um, and I think this part of it um, creates this us against them thing, and then it becomes these social things like abortion, g- g- you know, anything regarding anything regarding, or even remotely, uh, LGBTQ equality, um, all of that stuff gets lumped in together and it becomes the overriding thing that, that supersedes, I maybe should be voting for a Democrat because they, they want to lift me out of poverty right now. Uh, You know, all the, you know, citizens of Clifton, Colorado or something like that, you know, uh, living in a certain way. So maybe, maybe this is just a continuation of what we were seeing even back in the mid 2000s.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, and even farther back, what it shows me is that a lot of the sort of like cultural, culture wars, and the that started back, or at least were uh, elevated with the contract with America and all this kind of stuff, oh, yeah. with the rise of the Christian conservatism in the early 90s, early to mid 90s, that took hold in some places better than others and, and, and sustained itself longer in certain places than others. Like, you know, the, let's not forget the state of Colorado passed Amendment 2 in like right. 1992, I think it was, which yep. essentially stripped um, gay people from protections of discrimination, essentially saying if you're fired because you're gay, then that's okay. And that was voted into the state constitution until ultimately invalidated by the Supreme court. But at the time, even the democratic governor, um, Roy Romer, uh, defended it as not something that he agreed with, but he agreed with that the voters had spoken. And so once then the Supreme court comes in and knocks that down, then the voters feel aggrieved. Once these other sorts of things start happening that, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people in some of these towns in, um, in the third district, that have never knowingly interacted with with a gay person, you know, and so as a result, it's easier for them to sort of caric- caricature them and make them something that's evil, and you know, lean into the sort of misreading of the Bible in order to validate what they say, and then they're surrounded by people around them that agree, and they go to churches that to say that same thing, and there that becomes like part of the thing that the big city is trying to impose upon them, and so social issues. We're very sort of deviously wrapped into a certain style of political ideology in order to give people an excuse to hate the other side or to reject the other side in spite of what the policies might be. And of course, I mean, we've talked about this before. There's no greater example than abortion. You know, almost no one is pro-abortion. And so it's a false argument to begin with. And why wouldn't everyone want to be participating in a system or believing in a system where, hey, we do everything that we can to minimize abortion, you know, and then ultimately the conservative argument would be, That's a person's personal choice. They need to conserve the power to make those decisions for themselves, not be told by the government. But instead, there's wild hypocrisy in it because it becomes a social issue. And then they just you know, circle back to, oh, well, the Bible says this about it. And then they're in a, a sort of typhoon of logic that makes it difficult for real conversation to break through. And having grown up there and confronted Scott McInnes in a way in which no one was happy about, but me, um, that groupthink is very strong. Mm-hmm. And that group think leads to mistakes in the electorate. Um, and that is what happened with Lauren Boebert. And now, you know, I mean, I think over the weekend here, her communications director resigned uh, one month into less than a month into her term. And I think you might start to see the political establishment shun her in the way that they did a guy like Steve King from Iowa, where they're not going to necessarily boot, or boot him out, but they're going to do some things to appease the people that say that he's a horrible racist, like strip him of his committee assignments and things like that. And so I think um, Lauren Boebert's going to have a hard time accomplishing anything um, in the House, other than things that she just sort of attaches herself to that are more popular but by that very nature of that there will also be more moderate mm-hmm. and that her influence will be her loud mouth on twitter and her constant you know i have a gun talk which is like i don't understand that whole demographic of why they give two shits whether people carry guns or don't carry guns or whatever and then a final note on that she was in the capital it was overtaken by armed people and her gun never made an appearance so if it's not going to be used in that circumstance then why the hell do you need to like make an issue of being able to carry a concealed weapon in the u.s capital well
0: I don't know. if you treat your gun like it's an accessory to go with your clothing you're never going to use it right <laughs> so that's that yeah. is 100 who she is she's a performative conservative and uh, th- more than that though i mean they, they bring it in bring it in a lot of the elements and you brought it up um there is there's currently rumors that a bunch of uh congress people gave a lot of the people who were there tours a day before the thing happened uh now the reason it's notable is because it's like you're not supposed to be doing that with the covid restrictions and that's why people took note of it at the time but i don't know if that's it's going to be very difficult to prove that sort of thing but on the, on another level there just specifically with bobert i don't understand someone who what her motivation would be to be align herself as closely as she has with people who wanted to overthrow the government and were unsuccessful right How is that going to help her going forward? It may, uh, maybe it'll help her in the Colorado, in the third district, but if stuff comes out that it's it's proven she was aiding these people, it's, it's zero sum. She's going to either be gone or she'll be censured into the point where she's a non-factor, as you were saying. I just don't get it. I, I don't, I don't get the, the, the motivation to do that sort of thing.
1: Well, consider that it's like, it's not like she comes from politics. It's not like, I mean, this was a moonshot, you know, like, hey, maybe I can defeat the Republican candidate in the primary. And then she does, and no one could believe it. And then she gets elected to the Congress. And it's like, Beyond even her own wildest dreams, I would assume. Right. And so it's not like she's going to try to moderate so she can run for Senate someday. Or, you know, she's going to be like a Michelle Bachman type character who basically says outrageous things, gets all kinds of hits on Fox News and Own and Newsmax and, you know, Bre- um, Breitbart and all these sorts of things. And, and she'll have that audience. And I'm sure she'll parlay it into financial gain for herself. In various ways but the fact the idea that she has some sort of like governing philosophy beyond by like freedom protect freedom I don't think is uh, is anything anyone's ever ascribed to her and that is enough for her to win 51 percent of the voters in their in her district you know f- for some time I mean it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future and nobody knows but um you know the just to, to speak to the tours in the in the Capitol I do want to hesitate leaning into that too much because I don't want it to be a conspiracy theory that isn't that that, like we're espousing because I detest when that happens at all. I always say, say to you all the time, Morty, always incompetent, never conspiracy. right? Right. And this could fit into this case where if that is in fact true, it should be hard to find. There's closed circuit television all over the Capitol. Right. And they also have you know, a telecommunications network that basically can identify people that were there. So they should be able to determine if there were people there on the fourth and the fifth, walking around with their representatives or on tours of the Capitol. And then were they there on the sixth also? And when we get those answers, I'm ready to be enraged at the people that were enablers there. But, you know, I know that there's this picture circulating of of Lauren Boebert standing on the steps of the Capitol with some people throwing some white pride uh, symbols and wearing some clothing that like was similar to what you saw from the rioters or insurrectionists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that was actually on the steps of the Colorado state Capitol last right. year during the campaign and all of that. So, you know, in the fog of war, so to speak, it's easy to, to jump on these things and go all in for it. You know, I mean, Katie Kirk did bring it up when she was a guest on uh, Bill Maher's show on Friday. So there is discussion about it in what may be called the mainstreaming type media. But I think it's important to like, wait to know that for sure because it's a massive um, allegation and mm-hmm. it's essentially, you know, treasonous by anyone who would be involved and so I don't want my idea my bias that that it's likely with some of these people to convince me that it's true if maybe it isn't but there's still like areas of real question mark I mean you look at the timeline of Lauren Boebert's um behavior on the 6th she tweets out that morning 1776 in some of the um videos that have been released in the past, um, ensuing couple of weeks since the 6th, there's been a lot of hearing that chant amongst the rioters, 1776, right? Okay, so there's Uh, a correlation but but that could be it but then she goes down to the floor of the house and she delivers a speech and says madam speaker i have constituents outside these doors you know and they're angry and and that sort of thing so now you've got another sort of link going on that seems like questionable like why would you be aligning yourself with these people that took the Capitol by force and and you know sort of you know, violated the sanctity of the people's house. And then she went on to have some tweets that day, you know, remarking that the speaker had been removed from the chamber and such. And there's some question as to whether she was communicating to some to indicate that that was the case, because it's become more and more clear that the, the speaker and the vice president and others, you know, there were people that had plans to kidnap them or to murder them or, you know, assassinate them. And so those things, all lining up for a person who doesn't really deserve the benefit of the doubt, start to really create a picture that this is a troublesome person. Right. And the fact that she probably doesn't have to pay a political price for it means that there has to be a sort of price for her to pay elsewhere, whether that be eliminating her power in the Congress, whether that be small victories by telling her, no, you can't bring a gun into the House floor. And no, you cannot come in without going through the security protocols that have been set up. You know, And those sorts of things start to maybe restrain some of the worst instincts that she might try
0: to act upon right you know and I I, I, real-time stuff here real-time stuff I I just sent Pat a quote that I would like to uh, I would like to uh, emphasize here (laughs) Uh, you seeing that man
1: it uh, is just coming through and I am seeing it now yes
0: Okay. And it's, and it's like, uh, it, it's an article on on Biden in the, uh, in the uh, New York times that says he relishes freewheeling discussion, interrupting AIDS and chiding them for what he deems is overly academic or elitist language. Pick up your phone, call your mother, read her what you just told me. He likes to say, according to AIDS, if she understands we can keep talking. Right. I think there is an mm-hmm. aspect to the elect electorate that self segregates uh and th- there is no bigger uh example of that in than the discourse i'm not saying twitter is responsible i'm saying the discourse on twitter becomes either your haughty uh appear haughty um what is was it overeducated uh you're talking down to me stuff or uh it is like you're salt of the earth i don't under- understand anything it's 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 like reductive like this person's an idiot kind of discussion and i think since most of the public isn't on twitter uh you miss the grander discussion about what's going on which is why elections tend to surprise people and which is why we got surprised in 2016 and why uh donald trump was surprised this year because all he sees is twitter and he sees yeah, i mean his, the... his bubble and that but this is something that's happening like within the bubble of the third district is like they are very much a bubble out there. It is not the same as the rest of, as the Denver Metro area. And in the same way, the Denver area is a a bubble. It is, it is, it's, it's all over.
1: What do they call uh, Boulder Morty? Uh, 10 square miles surrounded by reality. Right. Um, Right. right. You know, I mean, that's a good point. I will say this um, I have uh, some people in my life, believe it or not, that are very conservative and that I actually have conversations like this with. And uh, going back to maybe 2015 or so, I remember having a conversation with one of these people that I hold in high regard. And, um, you know, they were a lifelong uh, Republican voter. You know, they were from a different state um, and whatnot. But anyway, they were talking about how they, they, they didn't like Obama because Obama lied. Obama lied about you, know, you being able to keep your doctor. I kept hearing that over and over from people on the right, which is hilarious now because Donald Trump lies like every day. But anyway, you know, so he was disingenuous. But I would be like, well, what about Joe Biden? You know, Joe Biden's like you know regular guy. And they're like, Joe Biden is a good man. You know, I, could, I could be okay if Joe Biden was elected president or Joe Biden had power or this or that. And I bring that up because in that world where he wasn't a threat, Really, to run at the time. I think he'd either decided not to run or, or something in that timeline there. They were able to concede that, like, hey, this is a regular guy who has been in politics for a long time, but he's a Catholic. And I'm a Catholic, not me, but this person. Um, he's, you know, a, a guy who, like, cares about his family. I care about my family. You know, he's a decent man. Maybe he has some policy issues on taxes and things like that that I don't agree with, but, you know, he, he's a decent person. And I, th- I think that him being in office and demonstrating that to people will be enough to hit 10% of the people in the third congressional district and have a look at the the people that they choose to run or vote for in their congressional elections. And maybe in 2022, they see like, hey, this Democrat that's running in this district would be a Democrat in a Biden Democratic Party. And that's not as scary to me as an Obama Democratic Party. And this Lauren Boebert is antithetical to my values as a American. And Mm -hmm. so I'm not going to vote for her. And it only is going to take reaching 10% of those people in some of these districts. And so, you know, we always like to go out on a high note, Morty, you know, that's, I'm famous for that. Right, right. Um, (laughs) So therein lies the hope that a more moderating um, candidate, the type of candidate, or, uh, or leader rather, now, uh, that can win Georgia, that can win Arizona, the Florida of the West, as I call it, um, (laughs) that person has the ability to connect with people in certain ways that all the Ivy leaguers and the elitists and the wall street people that have found their way into government, turn them off so much as a result of their sort of elitism. And I think that that um, quote that you just sent over from the times article, you know, is like, an insight into how Joe Biden thinks this isn't about like policy and nerding and wonky type of thing which Obama w- uh, was always criticized for that sort of elitism and he's the type of guy who talks about you know growing up in Scranton and uh, mm. and family and you know the, the, I you hear every time these stories come through of like you know a person who worked in the White House's family member was diagnosed with cancer, and Joe Biden spent ten minutes talking to them. Gave them their personal cell phone number. Every time one of those stories comes out, it's re- it's responded to by people that know Joe Biden as there are thousands of these stories, okay. you know, and it's because he craves the personal connection with people, which is like old school politics that we've totally lost, and Twitter has bastardized, and. I think that there is hope for that humanity to appeal to the middle and create some calm in the political storm. And so, uh, you know, that's the hope that I have for, uh, for CD3 and, uh, and other places going forward, is that there can be a path forward as we've made politics boring again, and we've found humanity in one another, and we found a common ground in things that bring us together as Americans. And those aren't twisting the words of the Constitution to talk about how elections were stolen. They were, hey, we're all neighbors. We have different opinions. That's what makes us great. But we go to the same churches. We shop at the same stores you know, we share a fence and that can help move us forward.
0: All right. Once again, Pat Guerin, last word. It's a <laughs> nice summation of where we're at today. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us on the latest sg politics. Uh, we'll back, be back soon with uh, another scintillating um, verbose episode. We'll be back with
1: a new president, Morty. Let's not let's not yes, forget. We will.
0: Yes, we will. We'll be talking about last the,
1: CSG podcast of the Trump era.
0: That's right. We'll be talking about the the action packed uh, first five days of the uh, Biden presidency, which hopefully uh, goes off without a hitch on the twentieth. So, hmm.
1: I'll be breaking down the inaugural address for sure. Right. All right. All right.
0: See you later, everyone.